Welcome to the Side of the Desk podcast, hosted by Fidelity Jobs and the Fidelity Women's Leadership Group. We're here to have deep discussions on the authentic experience of being a working professional in today's ever-changing workforce. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of Side of the Desk. I'm Maggie, and I'm here with Alicia and Joe. Today, we're so excited to be still recording podcasts. We're recording virtually, so we're all here virtually um, getting to see each other, hang out, and talk. And today, we'll be talking a little bit more about mental health and how to cope with an ever-changing society and rapid change. So, Alicia, Joe, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Maggie. Hi, guys. I'm Alicia Edwards, I'm working as a part of the Fidelity Associates, working on the Side of the Desk podcast. Been with Fidelity for about four years and really excited about where we're going and, and different outlets that we're able to reach people with, um, especially when we can make connections like Joe. Great. And I'll introduce myself. Uh, I'm Joe Grasso. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist by training, and I work at Lyra Health as the clinical director of partnerships. So in that role, I consult with employers on their mental health strategy, and then I deliver clinically informed educational content to share with employees and people leaders around things like psychological wellness, organizational culture, resilience, and overcoming mental health stigma. So glad to be here today. Awesome. We're happy to have you, Joe. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Joe. All of those things seem like super important, especially as we're in coping with the pandemic. So today we'll be talking more about coping with mental health specifically during the pandemic. So Joe, generally, how should we think about mental health? Like what's stress, what's anxiety, what's worry, what are the differences, et cetera? Yeah, good questions because a lot of these things get conflated and it's easy to confuse. So stepping back broadly, thinking about what mental health is. Mental health refers to the state of our emotional, psychological, social, and cognitive well-being. So typically we think about good mental health as the absence of mental illness, but there's actually been a shift recently towards thinking about mental health as actually not just not having mental illness, but actually promoting positive emotions and wellness. Now, stress and anxiety are kind of offshoots of Um, mental health concerns. So stress is not inherently bad. We need stress to motivate us to do the things that are important for us. So when we feel that sense of urgency to work, that's stress. But too much stress is what can lead us to end up feeling anxious and overwhelmed. And so kind of think about stress on a continuum. Too much stress is when we're kind of in a danger territory. Anxiety is when we feel not only that sense of stress, but also an impact in our ability to function because of it. So we're having uh, physical symptoms like, you know, maybe our heart's beating faster, we're breathing shallowly, uh, we find it hard to relax, we feel that muscle tension and tightness. And a lot of that, that reaction in our body is due to worry. So think about worry as something that causes anxiety. Worry is the thought piece, the cognitive piece that drives anxiety. So it, it's kind of like a, like a nested doll, right? You have like worry and then worry leads to anxiety and then anxiety 
is part of uh, mental health issues that, that can then become problematic. And the worry right now that's driving all of those things is really natural because we tend to have worry in the absence of certainty. And right now, this is a really uncertain time. So in a period of uncertainty, our minds want to fill in the blanks. Our minds want to be able to predict what's going to happen in the future. And in the absence of being able to know what's happening in the future, our mind will turn to worst case scenarios or vivid imagination around what could happen. And when we think about what could happen in negative terms, that's worry. And that leads us to become anxious. And that leads to negative impacts on our mental health. Yeah, definitely for me. I mean, I think the biggest thing that I'm struggling with is is uncertainty with the pandemic, with uncertainty about when we're going back to work or when mm -hmm. the economy will come back to normal, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much uncertainty and mm -hmm. like even just displacement, right? Like right now I'm in my parents' house, which is originally, and I'm definitely blessed to have those options, but mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty about what is this new normal and how long will this last? Yeah. Do you have any best practices for how to cope with some of those worries? Yeah. So I think um, first, just normalizing that we're all going to worry, but it's really the extent to which worry gets in the way for you and being able to you know, do the normal activities of your day, to be able to function well, and, and to be able to cope. So if people are noticing that you know, worry is really kind of uh, leading me off track. It's making me feel more anxious. It's making it hard to concentrate on anything else. The number one thing that you can do as just a general guideline is catch the worry when it's happening. Like know that what's going through your mind is worry. It's not, it's not necessarily a thought that is um, rational or based in fact. It's based in imagination. And once you know that you're worrying, then redirect your attention towards something that's more productive. Like by recognizing the fact that you're worrying, you're also recognizing the fact that you're entertaining a thought that probably doesn't serve you well. And by knowing that this is a thought that isn't helpful to me, you can give yourself permission to pay attention to things that are more helpful. So that could be really practical things, like ways in which you can take better precautions and better keep yourself safe ways that you can uh, prepare for the future with likely scenarios, you know, recognizing that I may or may not be returning to work soon. If I do return to work, here's what I can do to keep myself safe and mentally prepare. If I'm continuing to work from home, here's what I can do to make that sustainable. So redirecting your attention towards what's productive and practical and ultimately what you do have control over because that's another piece of anxiety when we start to focus on all the things we can't control and we lose sight of what we can then we feel anxious and then we get caught up in worry that again is is just unproductive and so it it's being mindful it's redirecting your attention and it's thinking through what's going to be productive for you instead yeah, I definitely feel like in, in my experience with, you know, my family and my friends, myself, um, redirecting your attention to just 
those small things that you can control is almost like um, practicing a habit, right? Because you're uncertain yes. about all these big things that you can't control the outcome or the answer to, but you can control really small things in your everyday life. And, and that can make you feel a little bit more safe, a little bit more in control. And, and I think that that is definitely a, a good thing for people to be mindful of and, and practice during this time where it's really quite unprecedented. Like nobody has experience with this, so nobody knows what to do. <laughs> exactly. And, and you actually reminded me of another point here. You know, part of the uh, umbrella of things that are productive that you can turn your attention to, it's not just trying to problem solve, you know, potential issues. It's also thinking about what is good for taking care of yourself. That's productive too. So maybe the most productive thing is taking a media break or reaching out to a friend or doing some exercise or reading a book or taking a walk. Productive doesn't have to mean that you're taking action around a problem. Productive can simply mean I'm doing something to take care of myself. That's productive too. Yeah, and I, I think that that also speaks to this, a similar cadence of like, uh, positive mental health is not the absence of mental illness. Um, just yeah. like the, the positive change that you might enact is not solving a negative problem. So definitely a theme there that I think can apply to a lot of different circumstances within the pandemic. Exactly. And at Lyra, we have a stress management workshop. And the way we come at it is, you know, we frame it as the goal of of living a well-rounded life isn't to get rid of stress. It's to be able to move towards the things that you value and are important to you, even when stress is there. So I always find that helpful as a framing, you know, just uh, the absence of stress or the absence of emotional struggle. That's not in and of itself a really enriching life. Instead, we're thinking bigger picture, not only how can I manage my stress, but how can I also move towards the things that give me a sense of meaning and purpose and joy. Mm. So I'm thinking about like how to employ sort of starting to think about what thoughts are really productive versus what thoughts aren't productive. Mm -hmm. How do I determine that? Like what helps me think through what is productive and what's not? Like I could see myself rationalizing that thinking through worst case scenarios would be productive so that I'm more prepared or something. Yes. So what, how do I start to identify what are productive thoughts and unproductive thoughts? Yeah, great point. Because often worry gives us that illusion of control, right? Like, well, this could happen. So if I worry enough about it, maybe I either prevent it from happening or I prepare myself in case it does happen. But in those moments, we're not recognizing the countless times that we had a worry that we prepared for and it never came true or it never came true at least in the way that we worried about it anyway so i think in those moments you can ask yourself three questions to determine if this worry is something you should shift away from one how realistically how accurate do i think that this worry is do i think my prediction for the future is really clear and accurate or do I think it's something that's more based out of fear and may not be the most accurate read on what could happen? The second is how likely do I really think this worry is to actually happen? You know, and, and I actually encourage my clients in my private practice to scale it. So, you know, like try to assign a number to it on a scale of zero to a hundred. A hundred means it's totally certain to happen. Zero means there's no chance. How likely do you think it actually is to happen? 
And usually the answer is, well, probably pretty low. And so <laughs> then that kind of shows you this isn't worth investing in. But the third question I think is actually the most helpful, asking yourself, okay, even if I don't know how accurate or how likely, how helpful is this? Does this thought actually help me to prepare better, problem solve, or feel better? Does it make my mood better? Do I think about it more clearly with the worry? Do I find that the worry helps me to fix something? The answer is no. Then that's your answer to whether you should redirect your attention or not. Redirect your attention because that worry is not serving you. Yeah, that, that's helpful. Yeah, I think that's a really great question, Maggie, and, and probably some of our listeners can identify with it as well, because it, that is kind of one of the major themes of, of this whole time is the uncertainty and, and the worry and the stress and all of the novel situations that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Right. I, I understand that inclination to want to prepare, but just make sure that you're preparing for something that is actually likely and is actually realistic and, and maybe kind of check that with someone else before you start investing in the worry check in like, hey, this is the worry that I'm having that's leading me to want to prepare or act in these ways. How does that sound to you? I mean, does that, does that feel rational to you? Does that feel like I'm on the right track? Oftentimes, people are a better judge of our own thoughts than, than we might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Kind of transitioning to other things that are happening in the world. There's a lot happening societally, and a lot has been happening in regards, there's like national tragedies that are happening. And so racism has obviously been mm-hmm. around for a long time, but it's now really been highlighted mm-hmm. into sort of mainstream social consciousness. And so because of that, a lot of corporations mm-hmm. are um, have a desire to talk about racism at work. And there's just been a lot more of a magnifying glass on this issue. Or, yeah, on this issue. So given that, do you have yeah. any advice for both Black colleagues and allies on how to show up at work given everything that's happening in the world and coping with that mentally. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad that you, you broke it out into two different audiences here. The way in which um, I would advise black individuals versus allies, it differs. I think for um, people from the black community right now, it's just recognizing that now's the time to give yourself permission to practice self-care. And, and I know that right now, that can feel especially hard and challenging because, you know, right now there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of also a sense of action. Like now's the time to move this uh, movement forward, to advance this cause, to take action, to be vocal, to engage in advocacy work. And that's absolutely true. If, that, if that's what you're called to, then absolutely. But also recognizing that you need to be in a place of, of emotional wellness and mental wellness to be able to sustain that effort. And the way to, to prioritize your wellness right now is to practice self-care. And, and that can look differently for different people. For some people right now, it's recognizing that the media can be an added source of distress. And people understandably want to be kept informed and stay on top of what's happening in the world. But choosing the degree to which you engage with media and and taking the time to reflect and ask yourself, is there a point at which social media and the news causes me more distress? 
And do I need more news and social media to help me take action? So thinking about the ways in which news and social media are serving you versus the cost that they might be uh, taking, the toll that they might be taking on you. I talked to um, a colleague of mine. Uh, she's a black professor in the study of race-based stress in, in the black community. And she was telling me, you know, I just decided I need to step away for a minute. Like, I cannot watch another video. I cannot see another image of police brutality or a black victim of violence or hate. I just can't do that right now. And so she set that boundary for herself. Similarly, setting boundaries around when you're willing to engage and with whom. Not everyone deserves your time. And just because people are well-intentioned and they want to know how you're doing and they want to check up on you and they want to talk to you about what's happening in the world, you always get to decide, do I want to engage with this person on this topic? Do I want to engage with this topic at all? So just making sure you don't feel that sense of obligation to engage if that's just tiring or stressful or it's not something that adds value. To your life. And then doing the basics around self-care, you know, making sure as best you can that you're still trying to prioritize social time with people who you do connect with and, and maybe people specifically who share your similar perspective and have shared experience with you. Now's the time to hopefully connect with a sense of community. Also making sure that you're prioritizing things like sleep and eating well and staying physically active the colleague I was mentioning just a minute ago, she was saying she likes to think of physical movement exercise as a way to metabolize the stress. She's like, I'm, I'm feeling all this heightened stress right now, and it's in my body, and moving in some way, whether it's dancing or running or some <laughs> kind of physical activity, helps me to kind of work through it and process it. So I'm not just She needs a way to it. get it and out. I thought it was real important. <laughs> exactly. She's a way to get it out. And that's I think awesome. That's self-care too. That's self-care too. Um, and so, and and also, frankly, just taking time. If if you feel like right now you're not able to come to work in a way where you can be fully present, and you're not going to be productive anyway, and it's going to be emotionally taxing, consider taking some time off, or at the very least, building breaks proactively into your day, so that you're able to step away, take a breather, hopefully do something restorative and then re-engage. Um, so that's what I'm, what I'm really wanting to emphasize for individuals of the black community right now, prioritizing self-care as best you can. For allies, now's the time to educate yourself, to be supportive, but supportive in the right ways. And that means seeking out resources to understand what good allyship looks like and not putting the burden on people of color, and in particular, black individuals, to educate you on what to do. I think a lot of well-intentioned um, non-black individuals right now are asking questions. What can I do? How can I make this better? Tell me about your experience. What is systemic oppression? Asking someone who's black who's dealing with their own anguish and pain right now and has been dealing with racism their entire lives to now take the time and effort to educate you that's extra burden. No matter how well intended your question, the impact is burden. So seek those resources elsewhere. 
Google's your friend, you know, turn to reputable organizations such as the NAACP or organizations that are devoted to anti-racism and find the ways to not only learn more about the historical context, but also what specific actions you can take that aren't what you think are helpful, are what people who've been impacted are saying will be helpful. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, for from my perspective, learning how to be a good ally is an ongoing process. And I think there's, there's a certain, I guess, a sliver of social media right now that is kind of tender and it's people learning yeah. and it's, it's just like this really nice way for people to come together and, and learn and use resources and use social media for, you know, the good that it can do and, and spread positive words and positive information and, and help people learn how to be good allies and, and implement those practices into their daily lives. So it's definitely um, an interesting time and, and moving forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I, I, um, was talking with my colleague who is right now doing a lot of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion events, and and you know talking with her about what she's hearing from allies who want to help and and what their main concerns are. And I think a big concern among allies is, well, what do I do if I mess up? What do I do if I say the wrong thing or I don't take the right action? And the answer is, you know, recognize when you stumble but keep going, you know, don't let that stumble because, you know, stumbling is, is part of life. We're all fallible. That, that's going to happen. But when it does, you recommit to the effort and you learn from it and you, you push forward in, in your efforts towards, towards anti-racism. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you said that that all makes a lot of sense, especially I think it's important to think about at the workplace as all of us are you know, coming together in these groups and, and how exactly can we be colleagues that are cognizant of everything that everyone else is going through and how can we help alleviate some of their burden and take some of that burden upon ourselves as allies. So that all makes mm-hmm. a ton of sense. And I especially think, you know, the part about self-care um, for our Black colleagues, I think that's so important. Um, and to be given that time mm-hmm. and the flexibility that whatever they need and just, you know, the empathy of whatever they need. Mm-hmm. I think that is so important, um, especially in regards to mental health. Yeah. So thank you. Agreed. Yeah, agreed. So what are some other major themes you're seeing in the pandemic and and just recent events in mental health in general? Yeah, you know, I, I think what we talked about in terms of uncertainty, that that's kind of the biggest theme that I see. And recognizing that this pandemic is what can feel like a slow moving crisis. And that means we're going through stages. We have a lot of research in the psychology literature, post life disrupting events. So, you know, whether that's a natural disaster or a terrorist event, or, you know, even a a pandemic, we have research to kind of show what, how this goes, like what the progression looks like for people's mental health. And what you typically see is at the onset of a crisis or life-disrupting event like our pandemic, what happens is people rally. They want to take action. They're motivated. People are moving really quickly to adjust and kind of banding together to address the immediate needs. And you kind of think of that as like the emergency response. So we're, we're kind of through the emergency response mode. 
And now we're in this next phase where we're recognizing this is settling in. Like we are settling in for a longer period of adjustment and coping than we might have initially realized. And so when we realize this is more of a marathon than a sprint, people can start to become demotivated or demoralized or the sense of discouragement like, wow, this, is, this isn't going to be a quick recovery. This is going to take time. So I would say in addressing that theme, that theme of kind of this new sense of resignation, that now's the time to try to find ways to create a new day one, to kind of reorient towards what you can do right now and specifically what you can do to re-motivate yourself. In the work context, I think managers can really help here by helping their employees identify some kind of passion project that, that's still important to the company, but is also of particular interest to the employee. That way you give employees something to focus on that gives them a sense of motivation and ownership and gives them something to invest in that helps them channel that energy into something that's refreshing and gives them an increased sense of value at work. I think in the personal, it's recognizing that we've got to pace ourselves and have extra patience with ourselves when we face setbacks. The longer we're in this, the more likely we are to end up in situations where we you know, get into conflict with the partner we feel regret over something we said or a way we reacted to our children. We're not going to be as uh, on top of cleaning the home or on top of, as on top of exercise or eating well. The added stress of this situation, especially as it's prolonged, is going to mean that people face additional challenges and stressors and that people's fuses are a little short. So when you fall short in an effort or you have a setback, give yourself some grace and compassion. And think about the kind of response you would want to give to a friend who's saying, geez, I really missed the mark, or I really said something to my spouse that I regret, or I really you know, blew it at work on a work project where I, I was giving my best effort, but it fell short. Don't allow that to demotivate you completely. Instead of being self-critical, recognize this is a hard time. I'm doing my best. This wasn't the end-all, be-all. I can recover from this. And right now, I need to give myself a little kindness. But tomorrow, I can pick myself up and reorient towards doing better next time and making amends. Yeah, I think that's, that's really well articulated, Joe. I think, you know, in, in my own personal experience with the pandemic, I'm usually so quick to be like, oh, I could have done better, or I should have done this, or I could have done this or whatever it is. And I would almost never say that to a friend. I would, I would tell yeah. them that it's okay. I would give them the grace and the forgiveness that they're looking for. And, and, um, and you know, I, I know that they mean well, and I know that it was just a mistake or, or they were just tired, you know, everyone's tired. Right. <laughs> so I, uh, I think that's a really, really important thing to remember to just be gentle with yourself, creating that like new normal or the, the new routine that works well for you. It takes a lot longer than you expect it to. And I think like, we're all kind of following that once <laughs> so, we're, well, you know, a lot of factors at play. Well, no, well said. I, I totally agree. And you know, the thing about how we respond to ourselves after a setback, you know, like, oh, I should have done better. There's often this belief in the back of our head that if we criticize ourselves, it'll be a motivator. Like, 
gosh, you know, like if I just recognize how bad I was at this, you know, project or task, and then I beat myself up over it, I won't do it again. I'll do better. But we have a lot of research to show the opposite is true. When people are overly self-critical, especially chronically self-critical, what happens is they just kind of lie down and they're like, well, there's nothing I can do. Like, I'm obviously not equipped to handle things. And they label themselves in these ways that kind of give themselves an out from doing better next time. Like, well, I'm just not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not capable enough. I'm not productive enough. That's just who I am. Like that self-criticism starts to define who you are to the point that you kind of create your own self-fulfilling prophecy. And so that's why self-compassion, for some people, self-compassion, if you don't know about it, it can sound like letting yourself off the hook. Like, oh, well, I'm just going to be nice to myself in the face of this setback and everything's fine, but I'm not accountable. That's, that seems wrong. That's not at all what this is. This is just saying, hey, I struggled. This was hard. I'm doing my best, but I can do better next time. That's much more likely to motivate you to actually do better next time than beating yourself up. Mm. Yeah, I think that's awesome. That I definitely resonate with that. <laughs> yeah, because I, I know that like even in throughout the pandemic, it really tracked like sort of emergency mode of like, okay, this is my new normal. This is how I'm going to capitalize on this time. Like I need to do all these things. And then sort of after I did some of those things, I was like, I can't do all of it and sort of just gave up and it moved into that sort of self-critical mode. And I also, I do really rationalize that self-criticism as this is the way to get better is to identify the problem, identify the weakness and like analyze (laughs) it forever and ever and ever so that I can make sure that I fully won't do it next time. And then try to do better next time. But I think you're like, that's really, I actually didn't know that there's so much research about that. And that that's not actually that helpful. I I really (laughs) thought it would be helpful. But um, knowing that, that does give me a lot of permission to give myself a lot more grace, which I think clearly is in the workplace too. That's good to know. Yes. Yeah. You're not alone. Uh, Just know that how you're dealing with yourself in the face of setbacks with self-criticism a lot of us are doing the same thing, but now hopefully giving yourself permission to not react that way because not only is it not fair to you, it's actually undermining your effort to recover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. I wanted to transition a little bit about mm-hmm. managing finances. I think in this is another area of the pandemic where there's a lot of struggle um, to manage our finances. And that's probably a huge stress on a lot of people's minds. So do you have any advice there on how to cope with managing finances? And especially as Fidelity, it's nice to talk about this as well. Sure. You know, I think it's helpful to first zoom out and think about the big picture of making decisions during times of stress, just broadly. We we often are impaired in our decision-making during times of heightened stress and in particular during times of fear and uncertainty. And it's our natural inclination during times of fear or uncertainty to make quick decisions based on that fear, which have us hyper-focusing on the information that we have right now 
but not taking the long-term view. Same very much applies to our finances. I think, and especially recognizing that financial stress is one of the most uh, powerful sources of stress. When, when people feel like they are out of control with their finances, that's one of the most robust predictors of bad mental health because that, that weighs on people. So when you're, when you're thinking about your finances and having to make decisions, whether that's about your investments or about you know, your, even just your household budget, making sure that you're taking the time to slow down and really evaluate the data, evaluate your goals, evaluate your situation currently, but also what's likely to occur over time. And consulting with outside resources, too, so that you're not allowing yourself to make a decision based on impulse, that you're slowing down enough to make a wise decision. In, in psychology, we talk about uh, wise mind and how wise mind is the intersection of our emotional mind and our logical or rational mind. And so, you know, if I'm always in my logical, rational mind, I might never prioritize any money for anything that could ever be considered frivolous because it's not rational, even though that leads me to make very prudent fiscal decisions that, you know, lead me to save and invest. I'm not enjoying my life because I'm only focused on the logical. Then you have your emotional mind, which says, act on impulse, whatever you're feeling, take action, do what satisfies you in the moment. Wise mind is the middle ground that says, okay, what are my emotions telling me? But really importantly with our finances, what is the data telling me? What are my long-term goals telling me? What is my current financial situation telling me? And making sure that you know, we're finding that right balance. But first, it's slowing down enough to even be able to tune in to those different values and goals and information and making sure that we're not acting out of haste or unnecessary urgency. So other than kind of stepping back and taking a look at the big picture and maybe consulting outside resources, I know when we talked about worry, you gave us the three questions of, you know, how accurate is this? How likely is it to happen? And how helpful is my worry? Are there similar mm -hmm. structures that you would recommend for, you know, knowing if it's a short-term impulse versus using your wise mind and, and having the rational mm -hmm. decision? Yep. I think, I think it's important to ask yourself in the moment, this, this impulse that I have, you know, what, the decision that I'm about to make or I'm considering, what's motivating it? Before I make any decision, let me understand the motivation. Is the motivation to get rid of some feeling? Is it to get rid of fear? Is it to get rid of anxiety? Is it to just deal with some uncomfortable emotion I'm having right now? If the answer to that is yes, that's probably not the right motivation because just trying to solve for uncomfortable feelings through a decision that has an impact on your financial well-being, that's likely to lead you astray. So understand your motivations. If your motivation is to plan for the long term and you kind of checked in with yourself to recognize what's needed to do that kind of planning and you've, you've kind of met uh, methodically gone through those steps, well, then you're probably acting with more of a wise mind. Another good way to think about this is how much time am I investing in this decision before I make it? 
you know, if you're only giving this decision, um, you know, let's say a couple hours or you're not sleeping on it, that's actually really good advice is to sleep on these decisions, then you're probably making the decision out of haste. And unless that's absolutely necessary, it's almost never the right decision. Yeah, thanks. Mm -hmm. So Joe, just to kind of um, circle back and take us, uh, I guess full circle, I'll say circle again, um, just to talk about what comes next. Um, as things start to open up and we start to go into the next phase of you know, the pandemic or, or whatever um, continues to come in the future, how should we go about protecting our, um, our mental health and not getting too ahead of ourselves and kind of keeping ourselves in check? You know, I think one of the best things that we can do right now is to make sure that we're not trying to plan our lives six months to a year down the line or not over investing in a long term future in terms of how we're going to be living our lives, you know, a year from now, instead wanting to be more present focused, because that's what we have a much clearer uh, perspective on. We really want to be preparing for what's happening today, what's happening this week what's happening in the shorter term, because that's what we still have control over. And when we try to plan out too far in advance, especially knowing that we're still in the midst of a pandemic and a rapidly changing situation, we're potentially setting ourselves up for disappointment or for unneeded frustration by making all of these plans that may not be best suited to the future state that we'll be in. So as best as you can, try to keep a present focus. And for anyone listening who's familiar with the concept of mindfulness, that's really what this is about. It's being mindful of right now and taking the time to pay attention to what's happening in the present moment. How can I react to the present? How can I create a sense of ritual and routine in my current life so that I'm doing my best to sustain myself right now rather than trying to worry and account for what's going to happen in the future when that's not really within our control fully. Awesome. Thank you, Joe. This is really helpful. A lot of major themes around uncertainty and dealing with national tragedies um, and a, an ever-changing and rapidly changing life. Um, this is really helpful for us to think about how to cope with all of this. So thank you so much for coming on to our show. Thanks thank for you having so much, me. I really Joe. enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, and we'll see you next time on Side of the Death. Thank you for listening to this Side of the Desk episode, and thank you to our recording studio and editors who make our episodes possible. For more information about working at Fidelity, check out fidelitycareers.com. Mm -hmm.